I think that the authenticity conversations are bringing up really interesting tensions around comfort and safety. Discomfort feels icky and we don't like it and we don't want to feel uncomfortable at work. But I think that ignores how many people do feel really uncomfortable at work. And what I encourage companies to do instead is to think about how to distribute that discomfort more equitably so you don't just have one segment of your workforce feeling uncomfortable all the time and that they're always having to code switch. Hi, and welcome to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the network of the most powerful women in business. Each episode, we take on a complex, thought-provoking leadership question. And for today, we want to ask, do you code switch? Even if you haven't heard or used that term in everyday life, it's a behavioral practice we've all tried at some point. Exactly. And code switching was originally a linguistics term used to define the practice of alternating between two or more languages or dialects in conversation. So for example, someone may use Spanish with their partner, but switch mid-sentence to English with their friend. Or in my case, in the boardroom, I politely call you Carolyn. But when we're together, I'm all, hey, Cece. But in today's society, code switching is about a lot more than the words that we use. So women, especially women of color, often find that they need to code switch their appearance or their personality and even their ethnicity in order to fit in and move up in the workplace. There are real repercussions to code switching, both societally and personally. The pressure to conform and essentially to not be yourself can be cognitively exhausting. And this invisible burden leads marginalized groups to feel extreme stress and anxiety, which of course can lead to poor performance. And that's exactly why we invited Dr. Courtney McClooney to join us today. She's an assistant professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University who researches ways in which institutional practices and policies perpetuate inequality. We'll talk to her about how code switching shows up in the workplace, how it can backfire, and how leaders can create a new normal, one that doesn't require certain people to conform, but allows everyone to switch off their biases. I see what you did there, Linz. Thank you for joining us today, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. First, Cornell University. I grew up in Ithaca. I have some deep affiliation with the Ithaca scene. Well, Ithaca is gorge, just. (laughs) (laughs) That is what the t-shirt says. There it is. (laughs) Before we dive in, it would be wonderful to just hear a little bit more about yourself and most specifically, what led you to studying organizational behavior? Absolutely. I think there's a couple of different entry points into this career. I was a very curious child, that person who asked a lot of questions. And as I became older, I was like, oh, I'm a researcher. That's what I do. I love asking people about their life. And I always found people's work experiences particularly fascinating. It was almost like this identity. I think we're socialized in this country, especially, to always think about what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be? I remember asking that question a lot to all the different people in my life from childhood to 
becoming older. I also had my first job at McDonald's. I was a fast food worker in high school, and that led me to want to study things like equality and well-being. That was an interesting industry and space to be in. <laughs> From there, I realized that the workplace was something that every human will probably have in common at some point in their life. And we spend a lot of time there. I think next to sleep, work is the next space where a lot of adults in the U.S. at least spend a bulk of their time. So if this is going to be a setting where we can fulfill our identities or a lot of our passions and where we are going to spend a lot of time with people who end up becoming possibly lifelong friends, I want to know more about it. What What is it about this place that attracts people to come? What leads people to want to leave? Mm -hmm. And how is work, if at all, positively contributing to our experiences here on this earth as humans? I think those are some of my motivating questions. Those are big questions. <laughs> in your work, you talk a lot about how organizational behavior is deeply rooted in marginalization practices. Can you expand on that? I mean, we're in a period of time where more conversations around DEI are taking place, not always seeing the impact of those conversations. What are your thoughts there? Yes, unfortunately, I do think that the imagination of work, and I do say imagination quite broadly, but this idea that we show up to work and look a certain way or dress a certain way, or we should make a certain amount of money compared to other people, or that there's someone who is our boss whose job it is to hopefully help you do your work better, but in some cases, possibly to terrify you and to terrorize your life. This is all an imagination of a very limited group of people who I think benefit off of keeping work in some ways, a space that can endure a lot of stress and make people have to work harder in order to get the things that they need to in this life. And I say that an organization is really a space where we see a lot of marginalization practices come into play. Yes. It's everything from normalizing pay inequality. And I say normalizing it because we assume people at higher levels should be paid more than people at lower levels. And that, again, is an imagination. We also normalize working hours, that there's a certain length of time that someone should be spent at work, as opposed to working to complete a task. That's another imagination and something that I think this pandemic in particular has surfaced for a lot of companies where people are redefining what it means to have a job or to work and where we work and how we work and when we work. All of these are new questions that are coming up. And I'm excited because it's time that we reimagine work so that it's not contributing to, unfortunately, a lot of burnout that we see in our society, a lot of physical health issues, mm -hmm. even thinking about those who are most vulnerable to contracting COVID. It was really those who were in essential work roles. We do need to start reimagining this idea of work if we want to have a more healthy, stable society moving forward. It's funny because there are so many conversations about bosses saying, everybody get back to the office. Everybody get back. Everything's normal. And it's like, wait, Wait, hold on a second. We just spent years outside of the office. White collar workers, office workers spent years outside of the office. And there was huge benefits for many people there, right? So instead of having these conversations around what we learned and how it was helpful for so many different types of people, it does feel like a lot of executives, a lot of corporations want their people to go straight back to the office and not really talk about any of the benefits. Absolutely. I think, again, we are creatures of habit and we love comfort. Mm -hmm. Discomfort feels psychologically painful. 
to endure an experience. If we are used to work being a certain way, any sort of change can start to create cataclysmic changes, whether that's how I identify, how am I a manager if I'm not here to manage people in person? Mm-hmm. That has led to changes to who I am as a person and how I see myself contributing to society. Mm-hmm. If all these things are changing, my identity might start changing. And that creates a lot of discomfort, a lot of sense of threat to some extent, a psychological sense of threat to our identification. And those are really powerful human-related mechanisms that I think are things people want to avoid as much as possible in life. This is why we try to speed past negative emotions and negative things that happen and want to get back to normal because we're familiar with it and it doesn't create as much discomfort. Mm -hmm. I do think corporations are less willing to engage in this experiment of reimagining work because it will require them to reimagine a lot of things and a lot of change is scary. You talk about a ton of different practices that all really contribute to marginalization. Are there some that you are like, this is the biggest of the practices that is contributing to it? Or are they all just chipping away and it's the collective of all of them together? Or are there just some that you would point to as being the most problematic that you've seen? That's such a good question. I'm not sure if I can label one as the most, but I do think there are some big primary drivers of overall marginalization. One is going back to this idea of an imagination. We have an ideal worker in our heads when we are thinking about a corporation. I'm talking mostly from a white collar lens, but I think there's also ideal worker versions in any form of work. Ultimately, an ideal worker is someone who we imagine is completely devoted to their job. Nothing stands in their way of getting to work, getting the job done. This motivates them to get up every morning. They spend hours and hours not just at work, but thinking about how to make work better. They are the ultimate devoted employee. They do everything that's asked of them without any disgruntles. They never get sick. They never have a child that they need to take care of or another caregiving responsibility. They're always available and readily willing to engage in work. This ideal form of a worker is unfortunately creating a lot of inequities and inequality for other people, especially people like parents and those with caregiving responsibilities who have to leave work or cannot work for a sustained period of time because it's disruptive to family life, for instance. Especially around sickness and absenteeism, I think I find it so fascinating in the U.S., people are way less likely to take paid time off than they are in other countries. It's not normalized for us to step away from work, even when we're sick. There's a lot of people prior to the pandemic who would show up to work sick. And this is one of the things I think was the silver lining of COVID. It required that you stay away and stay home. We saw people starting to take care of themselves for the first time, really, and stepping away from work. (laughs) This ideal worker image is one of those big ones that's contributing to a lot of the marginalization we see at work. I also see this in my work with code switching, where we even have an ideal version of what a worker looks like, mm-hmm. what they sound like, what their hair texture is like. And those attributes sometimes have a bigger effect on who we select for leadership positions than the skills and qualifications that people are actually bringing to the workplace. Can you define code switching? 
for our listeners? Yes. The way that my colleagues and I define code switching, we borrowed it from linguistic studies, which at that point in time only meant the switching between languages. And we adapted that to think about it from a more social psychological lens and find that code switching is this temporary switching on or adjustment of your behaviors, your style of speech, mannerisms, or even how you present yourself as a person in order to optimize the comfort of other people. And people engage in this behavioral practice because there's something that they want out of the interaction, whether that's I want to be seen as a professional or I want to be taken seriously in this moment, or even I want to survive an encounter with a police officer, for instance. And there's been a lot of data showing that the ability to turn on desirable behaviors, especially in the workplace, has positive consequences for people who are coming from marginalized groups. So I think you have talked about a few different types of code switching. Can you describe what those different types are? What are the differences between those types? Yes. I think there are numerous kinds of code switching. I will say that up front. There's a whole literature around impression management. I think code switching is just one of many forms of ways we try to manage other people's impressions of us. But I'll take a deeper dive on the work that my colleagues and I have done with Black professionals in the U.S. primarily. There, we found that it was beneficial for Black people who wanted to code switch to try to downplay their membership into a stigmatized group. And unfortunately, in the workplace, Black people and Blackness as a whole is still quite stigmatized. We have a lot of stereotypes associated with Black people that would work against you in the workplace, things like being perceived as incompetent or lazy, and those stereotypes are counter to our ideal worker idea. There's also this desire to avoid negative stereotypes. So again, going back to those aspects of what makes you stigmatized, if there is a stereotype that I am lazy, I'm going to work doubly hard and show up first at work and be the last one to leave. This can contribute to things like exhaustion and burnout. The final component of code switching that we noticed in our data was also expressing a shared interest with members of dominant groups. In corporate America, that tends to be things like understanding how to play golf, or taking part in leisure activities that are typically associated with older, wealthy white men, because they tend to be and have been historically the leaders of a lot of our political, corporate, and education spaces. These are things that they're interested in in order for me to schmooze with them or or to become affiliated with that group. I also need to express interest in those things. Mm. Those are the primary three, downplaying your membership in a group, avoiding negative stereotypes, and then expressing that shared interest. What are the telltale signs that you can find that somebody is often code switching in the workforce? Yeah, it's actually quite hard to detect. I think this is something that people, especially people from marginalized backgrounds, may have been practicing since they were younger. Mm. I know whenever I was asked the question, was it the first time you think you code switched? I would think back, like maybe when I was four years old, when my mother would tell me before we go into an area that had majority uh, white people, that I cannot behave a certain way, that I must make sure I'm not being too loud or not being too rambunctious because there were some additional stereotypes that were going to be heaped onto myself and to her for having a Black child behave in a certain way. But some of the signs that you might be able to see if you're privy to this 
is if you witness people talking to each other, let's say people who are Spanish speaking and speaking Spanish to one another, possibly an excited tone. But when someone else walks in the room, they immediately stop speaking their language and might switch to English or even might change their tone and cadence of their voice. It's no longer this excited tone, but more, oh, hello, and this switch. Mm. Other ways that people might do it that are way more subtle are often things like written documents. So how you write your emails, and even how you sign your name on resumes, for instance. Sonia Kang and her colleagues at the University of Toronto Rotman School of Management found that a lot of Asian-identified folks would choose more English-sounding names as opposed to their actual Asian name. And that is considered a form of code switching. You're presenting yourself differently on paper so that people are possibly not stereotyping you or even thinking from the beginning that I can't even pronounce your name. So this will be harder for me to interview you and whatever biases can emerge from something as simple as a name. Wow. In a recent study, you talked about the tactics that women take to code switch in male-dominated spaces. Can you talk through those tactics and how they play out in the workplace? Yeah, this was a study that I published with some colleagues at Colorado State and the University of Michigan with women board of directors. And so we were curious about how it is that women across all racial groups and sexual orientations, how is it that they are contending with gender stereotypes above the proverbial glass ceiling? In corporate America, the board of directors, that is the top level of leadership. You have ascended all of the barriers and we were a little surprised to find that there were still a lot of expectations for how women should behave in that role. Ultimately, women at every level face these dual pressures to present themselves as both warm and competent, but to know how to do so skillfully and to adapt their behaviors that they're not appearing too warm when they should be more competent or that they're not appearing too competent so that they still appear warm. We found a couple of ways, a couple of tactics that these women are able to enact influence on boards and fulfill their role as a director while still navigating these expectations to be warm and competent. First, there was the need to present yourself in a warm way. These women, most often when they had an opposing view from everyone else on the board or they had a controversial take, rather than just stating their ideas up front and possibly risking backlash for not being nice, they would use these two behavioral tactics that we labeled as asking and connecting. Instead of saying directly that I disagree with you, they would say, could you tell me more about that and ask a question as opposed to just straight out disagree with someone. And by connecting, they would often try to build rapport with their colleagues, ask about families, really try to build this bond before they engage in deeper conversation. Whenever these women felt pressure to present themselves as competent and highly expert in their areas or fields, they would assert themselves. And this is where they were speaking directly and strongly. But they would also only do it if they had deep expertise. Some of the women we talked to went to schools or had credentialing to prepare you to getting on a board. And they doubted that their male colleagues went through similar processes. Part of this is because a lot of women who are appointed to corporate boards, unfortunately, don't have the same executive experience as their male colleagues. They're usually not coming from the C-suite. They're probably a level or two below because of a lot of internal barriers inside of companies. There is this sort of imposter syndrome going on where I am not qualified enough, so I'm going to overly qualify myself to engage on this board. 
the last set of behavioral tactics we noticed, they were a combination of trying to present yourself as warm and competent. They were things like waiting to share your idea until you've heard from more people. So that way you're not the first one to speak, nor are you the last. There was also a lot of checking with people offline or outside of board meetings. So saying, hey, I wonder what you think about this. These are some ideas I have and starting to build some relationships through back channels. And these tactics collectively, both knowing when to use them and how often to use them, helped our women be more effective on their boards. I feel like Courtney's describing me in meetings. I'm like, (laughs) I got a back channel. I got to hold myself back from not jumping in. This is like the exact opposite of what you do in meetings. You (laughs) jump right on in. I don't think you have that problem. I do. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what the impact of code switching is? Is it more of a potential negative effect on the individual of the weight that it creates for somebody of having to switch depending on which environment they are? Is it actually more of a detriment to the company of not getting somebody's true, authentic, Lindsay-like delivery of just telling it like it is? Where do you see the impact really lying? Yeah, my I'm going to use my favorite academic answer. It depends. The answer is like both of those, and I'll tell you why. I tried to put that as an answer to all of my tests, and it never worked. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I love the it depends answer. On the one hand, we, we frame code switching as a professional dilemma that a lot of people from marginalized groups have to contend with. On the one hand, because we have this ideal worker in our head, A lot of people in positions of power, those who are in evaluative positions, they do look for ideas or signals of professionalism, for instance, from other people. If you don't code switch, if you're not switching how it is that you speak or for Black women, for example, even straightening your hair, those can be signs that you are not deemed as professional, as credentialed, as expert, as competent compared to other people who do engage in those behaviors. This has a lot of job-related consequences for individuals who not only want to procure certain types of employment, but also ascend in their corporations. On the other hand, like you mentioned, Being inauthentic all day long is exhausting. It's a cognitive task. It's like on top of doing my work, I have to think about what I'm saying and how I'm saying it and making sure that I'm adapting my speech and my hair. And this is exhausting, not to mention costly, to have to change these things about you at all times. I'm curious, as so much of the last few years has really been focused on more representation in leadership and the need for that and all of the conversations around authenticity and how important it is for people to be able to show up as their authentic selves. Do you think that this has gotten better? Do you think that the need to code switch has diminished? Do you think it's all a lot of talk, but at the end of the day, people are still walking in and switching codes? Yeah, I am so cynical. Um, (laughs) I unfortunately believe that we have a long way to go to really make the workplace a psychologically safe space for people to be their authentic selves at work. I think we have some structural markers of this. For instance, I'm from North Carolina. And when the bathroom bill came around, I was like, what better way of signaling that someone doesn't belong at work than not providing accommodations for them to use the restroom? And I think about all the other different 
for example, body-related issues we have in the workplace, whether it's providing rooms for women to breastfeed, whether it's providing days off for people who are on menstrual leave. Like, I think there's a lot of different examples we have that pushes back against this idea of bringing your whole self to work, even at the physical level, let alone your social identity and cultural identity and those aspects of yourself that you want to bring in. I also think that the authenticity conversations are bringing up really interesting tensions around comfort and safety. And I go back to my earlier example that discomfort feels icky and we don't like it and we don't want to feel uncomfortable at work. But I think that ignores how many people do feel really uncomfortable at work. And what I encourage companies to do instead is to think about how to distribute that discomfort more equitably so you don't just have one segment of your workforce feeling uncomfortable all the time and that they're always having to code switch. But if everyone allows each person to be a little bit more of themselves, it might generate some discomfort. People are not used to talking about menstruation at work, for instance. That's going to make some people really uncomfortable. I got news for you at Chief, which is majority women. Yeah. It's a lot of period conversations. (laughs) There we go. It's going to make it so much more comfortable if we can at least have the conversation. Then we can start providing actual policies and accommodations to addressing the fact that, hey, some people are menstruating and it hurts and we need accommodations and time off. How can we redistribute that discomfort so that real policy change can happen rather than allowing the discomfort and that signal in our bodies to mean we should abandon ship? This is getting too uncomfortable. It's making me feel uncomfortable as the leader. So we should stop this forward progress we're making on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's such a good way to think about it, to think about the fact that it's not necessarily always about getting everybody to comfort, but it is redistributing discomfort. Thinking around ways in which companies can enact policies and think differently, not just about, again, getting everybody to happy, but redistributing that. It's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Are there other examples of ways that companies can, in your words, redistribute the discomfort? Give me some discomfort. (laughs) (laughs) In my co-switching work, I talked a lot about grooming policies as one example. This is a policy that I think, again, a lot of people were like, we just say look professional. We didn't define what that means. It's like, well, maybe you should Mm -hmm. because you have an idea in your mind, an image of what professional means. And when someone shows up with locks, for instance, or my hair currently is in a poof, and you don't think that's professional, you may unconsciously and implicitly start assuming that that person is taken less seriously and not leader material and start overlooking their actual work products. Mm -hmm. Things like having an executive presence is another element of the workplace that I think should start to shift. What is an executive presence? Can you define it in terms of actual behaviors and competencies and skills that people can learn as opposed to that people just have? What does it mean to have executive presence? The other big one I think is hiring for fits. This person fits in with our company or does not. I was part of a group at the University of Michigan as a grad student. They were trying really hard to change their hiring policies. And whenever we were discussing a candidate for a position, if someone mentioned the word fits, we had a protocol where we stopped the conversation and we asked the person to define what you mean by fit. If they could not break it down to a specific behavior or a skill or something that is measurable and observable to everyone— We had to pause, walk away, come back to the conversation a little bit later to get those implicit biases out there. Because I hate to say it, but we all do have biases, but we just need more protocols in place to check those biases so that we're not just allowing them to run rampant and run freely. Mm -hmm. It's almost 
clarity brings a level of intentionality into play and intentionality and really being thoughtful about all of these policies or presumptions will always benefit everyone the most because people now understand the context and what they're playing in. But at the same time, by giving that clarity, it could actually pigeonhole into a definition that doesn't feel inclusive. So how do you weigh that of what benefits and potential cons the clarity that you're describing could create for a culture? I think about this a lot with academic tenure conversations. So (laughs) no one knows what it takes to get tenure, right? And part of the reason why there hasn't been clearly defined is to not pigeonhole, as you mentioned, or only benefit a few people who can meet some criteria of tenure-worthy output. I think this is where we need to create what I'm labeling in my work, more human-centered work policies. Humans are not static individuals. We are dynamic. We shift and ebb and flow. As we saw in the past two years, our entire way of existing was completely disrupted. How well are we able to adapt to change and differences? We have a policy, for instance, a stated policy. Are these things written in stone or are they allowed to be flexible and change? And how do we create protocols around revisiting policies that we've created. Some companies, I think, keep the annual year update focus, but humans are more dynamic than that. Women have a cycle every 28 days on average. I'm just going to keep talking about menstruation. I think this is fun. (laughs) I don't get a chance to do that with other podcasts. I love this. Yeah, it's like every 28 days, something is changing in the body of a person who's menstruating. Why are we okay with leaving policies in place for years or decades at a time, as opposed to taking intentional efforts to revisiting the work and thinking of ourselves and our work in a more fluid and dynamic sense. I think this would also make things like being sick or needing to step away from work more reasonable if we thought of work as not as something you have to get done at a certain time, a certain hour, every day, certain level of output. But instead, what is our targeted goal and how do we flexibly get there in the most humane ways possible? You also mentioned protecting your team and Can you talk a little bit more about the psychological implications that code switching can have on an individual and how that can actually show up in performance and therefore create a vicious cycle of not getting more of the marginalized communities into greater positions of leadership? I love that question. Oh, so many answers and directions I want to go in. (laughs) These are some excellent portrayals of the downsides, as you mentioned, Carolyn, of having people feel this pressure to code switch and then starting to see some modicum of success by doing so. If you are code switching and you get the job, if you are code switching and you're promoted to leadership, over time, you might start to share that advice with other people. And what you will create, unfortunately, is a cadre of people who are willing to engage in that behavior, but you'll never actually shift the tide of representation in leadership levels because some people will not feel the desire to code switch. It'll create a different sort of stakes for them. Like, you know what? I want to come into a company where I can be my authentic self. In order to work here and succeed here, I have to be someone else. I'm not willing to do it. Over time, you're not going to necessarily diversify your company. And in terms of that vicious cycle, Even inside the person's mind who's code switching, you're reinforcing the idea that your best work self is not even your real self. It is the self you have created and you might reach a breaking point. Code switching, as I mentioned, requires a lot of cognitive energy and our cognitive resources are depleted when we're tired. 
they are depleted when we are at that level of burnout, but also when horrendous things are happening around the world. Myself and both Angelica Lee, who's at Duke University, we've both studied what happens to Black folks in particular when there is another police killing of an unarmed Black person and you have been given this news as you're going into the workplace or as you're starting your workday. What we find is that it is both of what we call vicarious trauma that is shared with people who are from the same marginalized group who are witnessing something horrendous that's happening to their group. And coming into the workplace when you are experiencing trauma is really difficult and hard. Talking about wanting to create safety, have you created a work environment where someone can be their self so much that they can even share that I'm experiencing trauma from witnessing these horrific things that are happening in society? Or is your workplace only a space where people can bring their happy selves? There's no room for that here. We, we check our identities at the door. What happens to a person internally when they are struggling against the real effects of vicarious trauma and trying to keep up this mask, this facade of code switching? And usually that's when we see code switching breaking down, people looking like they're having a temper moment, a flare-up. They are, quote unquote, losing it. They didn't hold it all together because it's hard to juggle those things cognitively and emotionally and psychologically. Unfortunately, because we live in a society where there's a lot of horrific things that are going to continue to happen and that we are going to become privy to because of our access to information, it's going to make it harder and harder for people to keep up the facade that they are okay and happy. And that's for everyone, not just people from marginalized groups, but especially for that group, it'll be harder to maintain this persona, this code switching self and pretend like those things aren't bothering you over time. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who have code switched their way to the top and now they're stuck and mentally drained and now what? This is one of the things I think a lot of Black people in corporate America like about virtual work environments. When I cannot keep up the facade, I can mute my line. I can turn off my camera. I can let it fall for a second. It was much harder to do that in person where you might not be able to escape to the bathroom or if you have an office and find some privacy. But if there are ways that you can disconnect from work during the day and so you're able to drop the mask, so to speak, I highly encourage that. And over time, I encourage people to ask themselves, what are the things that you care about the most in life? For some people, it's a stable and secure income. And they're willing to engage in code switching if it enables them to reach that broader goal. Keeping that goal in mind will be helpful. But when it comes to mentoring the next generation of people, I think that's where I would like for folks to have a lot more responsibility and accountability, that you can be honest and transparent with people that the way that I succeeded here was by doing X, Y, and Z. If you're not willing to do that, you will find a different path to success. Not that you won't be successful at all, but we will have to find another way. Taking the flip of it. So you just talked about the individual. From a company standpoint... Is there a foundational place to start that removes the expectations that you have to code switch and helps to make everybody feel like they're more a part of that ideal employee profile that you were talking about? Absolutely. I'll give you an example from a company that I worked with for a few months where I was with training their managers who were trying to figure out how to engage more equitable performance evaluation practices. And that was an area where I saw a lot of rewarding code switching behaviors. I started to ask them the meaning behind their performance metrics. Like, why is it so important that your employees demonstrate this behavior? And this was like a customer-facing, client-facing type of organization. 
And I said, I realized that you are rewarding a lot of customers who are able to complete deals, but a lot of the ones who are able to complete deals also admit that they are doing a lot of code switching. So now we have to go back to what matters to you as a company. Does it matter that you are securing as many contracts as possible, or does it matter that your employees feel that they are able to authentically show up at work? And it's through being their authentic self that they are rewarded. When you look at your performance evaluation forms and protocols, observing company meetings, like how is it that we're communicating with each other? Thinking back to my women on boards, I push board chairs to be in a more observer role and figure out how do decisions actually get made? Is it the person who's actually yelling the most? Is that whose opinion that we tend to go with? Or do we actually take round robin turns and listen to each other speak before we come to a decision? If you don't know what your company culture is, how on earth can you know what it's like to experience it? right? It's like, you have to take way more of this research investigator mode and start asking those questions and leaving no stone unturned, leaving nothing up to the imagination, for instance. Like, oh, here we do things this way. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that this is the type of culture that you have? Show me some evidence that this is what you all do. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes what I'm finding with the diversity, equity, and inclusion goals is that they're just a lot of statements. They're stated aspirations and visions, but they're not backed up by a lot of practice. For uncomfortable workplaces. (laughs) (laughs) Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Before you go, we always ask the same question because we get the best answers. What is the best piece of leadership advice and the worst that you've ever received? Can I start with the worst? I always find those more interesting. The worst is always... Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to start with the worst. I'm a Disney person. I always want to end on a happy note. From (laughs) the worst standpoint, and I think this is something that a lot of people in lower level roles, I'm thinking about junior academics, for instance, often told, keep your head down and do your work until you reach a certain level. For me, it's like tenure. For other people, it could be manager. And then you can speak out speak boldly about the things that are going wrong. Or for me, it's speaking boldly about injustices in society. So until that point, just keep your head down and work and you'll be rewarded for being quiet. I think that's the worst piece of leadership advice you can give. It doesn't help the company become better. It doesn't push us to that level of discomfort that actually leads to growth and to flexing new muscles. But instead, we're just going to keep churning along in this status quo, mediocre land. I think the best piece of advice I've ever heard is starting to redefine this idea of productivity. I found it on Twitter, Dr. Mona Masood. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. But they tweeted that productivity means to make intentional choices towards a goal. The choice could be to pause. The goal could be to replenish. Productivity could mean to rest. Mm -hmm. From that, the advice that I would like to share and give is that we should work from a place of rest, not for rest. I love that. I feel like Lindsay's going to use this on me real soon, where she's like, I'm being so productive. I really need a nap. (laughs) I love productivity naps. (laughs) I'm going to take some Midol. There you go. And I'm going to take a well-deserved nap. Yes, as you should. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been excellent. That was Courtney McClooney, assistant professor at Cornell University. It's amazing how much of the workplace paradigm we've accepted as normal and how despite all of our best intentions, we have accepted a singular construct of what the ideal worker looks and acts like, 
even down to their hairstyle, what they wear, and how they speak. Right? The biases that exist against marginalized groups in society still show up in the workplace, which means that people with intersectional identities, people of color, or folks from the LGBTQ plus community often have to code switch even more to fit in and advance. Considering how long the workplace hasn't changed, it can be deeply uncomfortable to reimagine how companies exist and how work gets done. And we all need to recognize these biases and do the exercise of clearly articulating what the workplace policies are in terms of what does executive presence actually mean from a tactical objective skill set. I also loved how she said that to make the workplace more equitable for all people, companies should think about how to distribute the discomfort more equally so that there isn't just one group of people in the workforce who feel uncomfortable all the time. It's time for a workplace revolution. We need to reimagine and redesign the workplace to make it actually work for everyone. Exactly. Free tampons for all. Well, you did make our first Wi-Fi password, tampons, tampons, tampons. (laughs) All uppercase. That's all for this episode of The New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following this show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're more of a social media person, find us and join the conversation on LinkedIn. But if you're ready to up the ante, and if you're thinking about becoming a member of the Chief Network, head to our website, chief.com, where you can apply. As a member, you'll be connected with the most powerful network of executive women across the country. Thanks, Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Katrina Conanan-Rial, Blaine Edens at Chief, and to our production team, Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Gina Moravec, Hannah Pedersen, Madison Lesby, and Michael Aquino. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>